And now, The Federal Drive with Tom Temin. Hello and thanks for joining us on this Monday, March 20th, 2023, seven minutes past the hour. I'm Tom Temin. Our producers are Eric White and Peter Masurlian, our digital editors Daisy Thornton and Robert O'Shaughnessy. Coming up in this hour of The Federal Drive, Social Security establishes a new office just for Native Americans. Plus, this tribal leader wants sovereignty restored, she says the government erased 50 years ago. Those stories and much more ahead during this hour of The Federal Drive. But first, federal employees now have new information from the Office of Personnel Management to help them figure out what the so-called future of work will look like. New guidance says agencies should continue using telework and remote work where possible and to take workplace flexibility lessons learned from the pandemic and turn them into long-term changes. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman joins me with more. And Drew, how and why did OPM create this guidance and why now? So, Tom, this is really writing down what OPM has been saying for a long time, that it's important for agencies to take lessons learned from the pandemic and turn them into something that's going to be more part of their long-term strategic workforce planning. It also builds off of OPM's guidance on telework from 2021, which encouraged agencies to use more telework. This is now outlining how agencies should move forward to what we're calling the future of work. So how agencies can take telework and remote work opportunities and turn them into something that is going to be more permanent and expanded for agencies. There's five priority areas for this so-called future of work strategy. What are they and what's OPM looking at here? The priority areas look at things like policy and resources, research and evaluation, and data analytics, and a couple other ones as well. For data analytics, for example, OPM is working on creating different public-facing dashboards. These are going to take information for example, from the Federal Employee Viewpoint Survey, or FEVS, and and make it into a, a dashboard that agencies can look at and filter down on different types of questions from FEVS to see information highlighted in a, in a clearer way that they can uh, make and they can build decisions based off of those. The, another dashboard that they're working on is for hiring manager satisfaction which has been a challenge just with uh, hiring managers struggling to recruit quality candidates. So that's one area OPM is looking at. In another area of this new guidance, OPM says it's going to be offering a free training session for managers and supervisors to help them with managing hybrid workforce. That's uh, been a challenge for some agencies trying to figure out how to deal with both in-person and virtual employees at the same time. Sobiam says they're going to offer this one free training and have others down the road as well for just general human capital management strategies. It sounds like they're going to offer kind of a data-based way so people can compare themselves to what other agencies are doing or some maybe established metrics government-wide that people can compare themselves to. Exactly. They're going to be taking this kind of approach where they're focusing a lot more on data and using hard evidence as where wherever possible to help agencies make more informed decisions. Now, on this whole area of hybrid work, OPM says it's already done a lot of work there. Where does that all stand, hybrid? I mean, hybrid is here by default, it seems, but without any real strong guidance on why or how much. 
So it really does depend on the agency on, and whether positions or different occupations are eligible for telework and remote work and that how that mixes in with in-person work as well. So OPM kind of issues these overarching policies and then agencies do with it what they will. The OPM's 2021 telework guidance, for example, encouraged more use of telework, and that's something that since then OPM has continued to emphasize that these types of practices are going to be really important for competing with the private sector, especially as a lot of employees and job seekers are turning more towards job opportunities that offer telework and remote work. One other area where OPM is making or has already made a change was adding a remote job filter on USA Jobs that makes it easier for job candidates to find those opportunities uh, where where they do exist in the federal workforce. Do you get the sense that maybe agencies are looking for more definitive guidance on from OPM on telework and hybrid, and OPM is telling agencies, no, you make the decision, but we'll offer general guidelines and dashboards to help you compare yourself to other agencies? Exactly. They're, I don't think we're going to expect from OPM to have a very clear or hardline directive to agencies. I think what we're going to see instead is this general, more general sense of how OPM is going to help agencies depending on the individual mission, the individual positions, which again can vary in terms of whether or not they're eligible for telework. Now, you mentioned a lot of dashboards that will be launched by OPM. You can compare different metrics, and they're also changing data reporting requirements on remote work. It sounds like to have all these dashboards, you have to have the data to populate them, and therefore this is going to come back to agencies for somebody at the agency, I guess HR maybe, to to report. So what's going on with that whole regime? Agencies are going to see new requirements very soon from OPM on looking at whether each individual employee is working either remotely, working on a telework basis, or just working fully in person, whatever their work arrangement is, OPM is requiring agencies to report more information. For example, hours of remote work per pay period and how many employees are on each type of work arrangement. That data will feed into OPM's system called the Enterprise Human Resources Integration or EHRI system, and agencies can then use that data or see it in a clearer way to filter down based on things like occupation or other different categories and compare, you know, okay, how many employees are teleworking in this position versus another one. And that will help them, OPM says, to just make more long-term decisions. Right. So they expect agencies to use this remote telework and hybrid work data because some members of Congress, some of the Republicans that want that return to the pre-pandemic levels of telework are saying they want evidence that it does help productivity, et cetera, et cetera. And so somewhere objective metrics have to be established here in the data to support them. That's right. And it is something that The House Oversight and Accountability Committee, when they had a hearing with OPM Director Kiran Ahuja just recently, they were raising concerns. Some of the Republican members were raising concerns that OPM didn't have clear information or clear data on how many employees exactly are teleworking versus remote working. So this may give a clearer picture down the line for 
how that actually looks for the federal workforce. And there is not yet a solid deadline for when agencies are going to have to start reporting this data, but it is coming soon. Right. And of course, the other issue that this all depends or depends on all of this is how much office space they're going to have. And I don't think anyone's ready quite yet to pull the trigger on. Well, I guess some agencies have, but in a widespread way, people are reluctant to give up that space because once it's gone, it's gone. Yeah, it's interesting. And, you know, to see that that's something that, for example, Mayor Muriel Bowser in D.C., she's said this, you know, essentially agencies should return their employees to the office or give up that space. But we have yet to see, as you said, that actually come to fruition. Federal News Network's Drew Friedman. Thanks so much. Thanks, Tom. And check out her story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, Social Security establishes a new office just for Native Americans. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Families have a lot going on. Let Ollie help manage the mental load with new cognitive health supplements for everyone four and up, like delicious Lolly Focus Pops or Lolly Mellow Pops for kids. And for parents, try three new Brainy Chews to help you focus, chill out, or get energized. Find these cognitive health buddies for the whole fam at ollie.com. That's O-L-L-Y.com. These statements have not been evaluated by the Food and Drug Administration. This product is not intended to diagnose, treat, cure, or prevent any disease. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. The Social Security Administration recently established an office for helping Native Americans. The agency, in its words, wants to elevate and centralize efforts devoted to tribal members and Alaska Natives. For details, we turn to the director of the Office of Native American Partnerships, Richard Litzy. Mr. Litzy, good to have you on. Thank you, Tom. Thank you for having me. First of all, what is the relationship between Native tribes, Native American tribes, Alaska Natives, and Social Security? The issue and why I'm having to, why we have this office set up is because, unfortunately, for a lot of different reasons, and I hope we can discuss that today, they don't always take advantage of the benefits or they may not be aware of the benefits. The point of my job is to enhance that relationship with tribes and Social Security Administration and bring the information to them and listen to them as well. But education is, is the key to the job, is informing them that the, these these benefits do exist and rightfully they can take advantage of if they qualify. Yeah, and I'd like to get into why they don't take advantage, but how many people might be involved here? Indian country is made up of about 2.9% of the U.S. population, and there's 574 federally recognized tribes in 35 states. So we're small, but we're spread out over the whole United States, and that's what makes the job challenging. Potentially, though, you're still talking about millions of people. Yes, correct. Almost three million. And what are the issues with Native Americans and Alaska Natives when it comes to knowledge of or simply taking advantage of privileges and rights that every other American has along with them? Well, for one thing, what we call Indian country, Indian country is made up of folks all over the United States, as I mentioned, 35 states, but also in cities and on reservations. A lot of these reservations are in in very isolated, remote areas, and getting the word out to them 
through our normal means of, tr- of communication, for instance, broadband and Internet just doesn't exist. And also there may not be Social Security walk-in offices, which still exist in a lot of places, but may not be in these remote areas. That's correct. I mean, in some cases, uh, well, in fact, we have a, an office in New York. It takes some tribal members eight hours to get there, round trip to get there. And then California, there's a field office that it takes four hours one way, and they have to go over mountains to get there. With weather and all the rest of it, that, that makes it quite uh, difficult for them to do and, and actually take, sometimes actually take advantage of the benefits. Talking about the services themselves, aside from the basic old age insurance, Social Security that is sure. kind of the universal thing, Social Security has many survivor benefits programs, disability programs, and so forth. Mm-hmm. Is that basically what your issue is, is their ability to access some of those programs that Social Security has that are quite large but are outside of the standard old age insurance? Yes, sir. That's exactly right. We have many different types of benefits. Some of them are kind of Native American centric, so we're, and unfortunately, not all tribes know about it, and that's part of my job is to get out and uh, deliver that service to them and let them become aware. I'll give you an example. I have a friend who's a tribal member. He and I are, are good friends. We keep in contact. He lives out of state. And uh, one conversation, he, he mentioned he'd injured himself and he was in a wheelchair and all that. And I said, well, what are you, what are you doing? He says, well, I, I applied for disability. I said, well, good, good. I said, uh, how's that going? He says, well, I guess I'm not disabled. I said, what do you mean? He said, well, they turned me down. I said, okay. And what did you do next? He says, nothing. Now, we're talking about an educated man who worked in tribal councils and held responsible positions. And it says quite clearly on what we're, what's called the initial determination for disability. It says quite clearly that you have X number of days to appeal this decision. Well, and now I'm on the phone talking to him like a, a employee of the Social Security Administration, and I hadn't really gone to work yet, but I t- <laughs> back here again. Sure. But I, I told him, I said, hey, the next step is a notice of reconsideration, a, a reconsideration level, and if they turn you down there, you, you, you may be able to get a, a hearing before an administrative law judge, and if you truly believe you're disabled and you can't do your normal work, you need to keep applying. You need to keep uh, appealing. Well, he didn't know that. He didn't, he didn't realize that. And I said, listen, up till now, up till now, everything that you've been doing has been with Social Security Administration has been on paper. If you have to go to a hearing, you can be in front of an administrative law judge. For the first time, someone's going to see you face-to-face and see your medical record, see how much difficulty you have getting up and getting down from the table in the hearing office. You might be there in your wheelchair. There might be any number of things that can limit your ability to do your job as, uh, that you used to have. He said, well, I'm glad that you told me that, and I'll, I'll look further into that. So there, there we are. We're speaking with Richard Litzy. He is the director of the Office of Native American Partnerships at the Social Security Administration. What is your strategy then for getting the word out to the tribes and to the Alaska Natives? Number one is going to be outreach, increase the outreach to tribal communities here and in any country. Uh, I'll be attending conferences, roundtable discussions, listening sessions, and trying to get the, uh, the feedback from the tribal folks I speak with. We'll also strengthen tribal consultation, which uh, are backed by executive orders from the Clinton administration or from the Biden administration that we have put together as a result of one of those uh, executive orders. We put together a tribal action plan that that uh, kind of outlines what we're going to do, that, like go, going out into Indian country and uh, improve service delivery and actually promote hiring through the tribal colleges and universities and um, 
get this office that stood up and so we could establish support for tribal affairs. And what about notifying people by old-fashioned mail? Because the Postal Service still goes to those places, even if broadband does not. They do. Uh, there is a problem with that, though, in an end country. You know, we're talking about developing world-type situations in a lot of times. Not always. And there's never an always here. But because of housing issues are also a poor housing conditions on reservations, you may have multiple families living in one home. And it's difficult. To, we don't even know where they are. So it's difficult for us to even communicate with them through snail mail. So this will be in large part a personal touch type of initiative. It is. But we have uh, the good thing is we do have all these offices all over the United States, Social Security offices. And uh, I plan to utilize a lot of those offices to do the work that I can't get down there on, you know, boots on the ground type thing. I will do as much as I can to, and, and it was put to me when, when I accepted this job, that a lot of travel is involved. And I will do that. And generally, there'll be strategic travel in the sense that if there's a large conference that I can reach many, many people, or maybe even tribal officials there, then those are the types of places that I'll go so I can get the word out. It strikes me you could almost put a Social Security office in an Airstream or something and go from place to place that way. <laughs> well, I'll tell you what, you supply it, I'll go. <laughs> this, All right. <laughs> I have to tell you, Tom, this is, this is my passion. I have to tell you, I was five years into retirement when I heard about this job. I, I applied, didn't think, I didn't know if I did it or not, you know, but I applied because I thought I cannot let this job go and regret some years later that I never applied for it. Well, by some miracle, I was I was appointed, and I'm in the job now. It's it's a, a passion to me. It's something I enjoy doing. It's work that I did when I was working on the uh, Senate Finance Committee with Senator Baucus. He was a senator from uh, Montana and became our ambassador to China. We carved out a special niche for me on the Finance Committee, and I visited all the reservations of Montana. We had seven there were seven reservations in Montana. Not only that, but uh, the word got out. Any country is small, but the word spreads quickly. And next thing I know, I'm speaking all over the United States to large groups of people. And that's what I plan to do in this job. And I enjoyed it tremendously. Yeah, you kind of beat me to the question there, but you do have a background in this, and you also have tribal associations personally, correct? That's correct. I'm a, I'm a tribal citizen of the Muscogee Nation of Oklahoma. I'm enrolled there. My father was full-blood American Indian, and he grew up there, and, and uh, he was also in the military, and we traveled all over the United States. I was an Air Force brat for 17 years, so I've been all over the country and Japan, and um, but my, my tribal headquarters is in Mulgee, Oklahoma. And let me ask you this. Is there a issue with establishing trust with the tribes? Here I am from the federal government. That's not such a great history in all cases. Exactly. The history between the United States government and the American Indian tribes has, has uh, been woefully bad, frankly. Even for me to go into representing Social Security Administration, I, I will have to prove myself, and, and I have a history with Indian country, but I'll have to prove myself that, they, that I'm trustworthy. And because there is a general lack of trust with American Indians and Alaska Natives. It's unfortunate, but that's given the history, as you said, no one is surprised by that. We've been promised much and given little. Richard Litzy is director of the Office of Native American Partnerships at the Social Security Administration. Good luck in this task, and thanks for joining me. Oh, you're more than welcome. If there's anything else I can do to help uh, 
clarify some of this, please let me know. I'd be willing to come back on your program. All right. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on your schedule. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Still to come, Congress takes up more of the budget this week and a few repeals. But first... This tribal leader wants sovereignty restored, she says the government erased 50 years ago. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. At Evernorth Health Services, we believe costs shouldn't get in the way of life-changing care. And we're doing everything in our power to make it possible. Behavioral health solutions that also keep your projections at their best? It's possible. Pharmacy benefits that benefit your bottom line? It's possible. Complex specialty care that cares about your ROI? It's possible, because we're already doing it, all while saving businesses billions. That's wonder made possible. Learn more at evernorth.com slash wonder. Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen here on Federal News Network. Among the longtime Native American tribes, consider the Muwekma Ohlone tribe. It once occupied lands in what are now Santa Clara and San Francisco counties in California. The Bureau of Indian Affairs recognizes nearly 600 indigenous tribes, but not the Muwekma Ohlone of the San Francisco Bay Area. That could change soon thanks to its chairwoman, Charlene Nijma, who joins me now. Ms. Nijma, good to have you on. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Tell us more about this tribe. It still exists. Where do people tend to live now and what's the status of it? My tribe is from the San Francisco Bay Area, the state of California, but we are right in the heartland of Silicon Valley, one of the wealthiest place in the nation. So our tribe was the tribe from the San Francisco Bay Area. There was many villages throughout the Bay Area, but when the Spanish came, they created and established the mission system. They started in Mexico and they moved their way up north. So when they landed in San Francisco, they created Mission Dolores, you know, Mission San Francisco, Mission Santa Clara, and Mission San Jose on the East Bay side of the Bay. And so my people were pushed into all three Bay Area missions. After the mission contact, you know, then it was the Mexican period. So we went through three different governments. So pretty much my people were decimated. So the people that were left were a small community on the East Bay. And we ended up on the East Bay because that was a a place of refuge for us because of the Rancho period. You know, we were their labor force. So we maintained their cattle and they protected us right from the settlers that were coming in because of the, the gold rush. And Peter Burnett, right, his policy of extermination on the Indians. And he was one of the biggest racist uh, senators in our history in the state of California. So we had bounties on our heads, $5 a head bounties. So we were being um, hunted. And really, our landowners that we we worked for protected us. We were on Phoebe Hearst land. Our community was on the Alisail Rancheria. We were right next to her railroad station called the Verona Railroad Station. What of it exists today? How many members are there and where do they generally live? So we are 614 and growing and we are spread out throughout the Bay Area. Most majority of us are on the East Bay but we are spread out throughout the San Francisco Bay Area. And by the way, do any members work in the Silicon Valley so-called industries there? Yeah, we have some tech people and yeah, we are. 
deeply embedded in the community. You were once recognized by the federal government as an indigenous tribe, and that recognition disappeared. Tell us what happened then. Right. So we were acknowledged in the early century in 1906 through Congress. They mandated to buy land for the homeless Indians in California. And our group was identified in 1906 through an Indian census to buy land for, along with the other 134 other tribes. We were identified again in 1906 to move forward for buying land, uh, 1914, 1923. But in 1927, Indian agent by the name of Lafayette Dorrington decided not to buy land for our tribe. But that didn't mean he didn't want to buy land because we stopped being a community. He just, he was racist and he didn't want to buy land for any more Indians moving forward. He wanted whatever was in the general fund, he wanted to take care of the Indians they already bought land for. So he removed us. We were the first, Verona Bound was the first to be removed from that list of tribes to receive land. But what happened after that is the government stopped ignoring us. Even though our leaders were reaching out to the BIA, what happened to our land deal around here? These were letters being sent. But what they were saying is that's an individual asking for themselves and their own family. Well, how do you explain when she's saying people around here are asking? It doesn't sound like she's asking for herself. Moving forward, they they just continue to ignore us. And they didn't add us to that 1978 list of federally recognized tribes. We're speaking with Charlene Nimja. She is chairwoman of the Muwekma Ohlone Native American tribe. And you're in Washington. You've been making the rounds. Do you have some reason to hope that perhaps Bureau of Indian Affairs can restore that recognition now? And what would that require? Does it take an act of Congress? It's two paths for us. It can be an act of Congress, but it's unfortunate that we have our own delegation in the Bay Area asking us to cede some of our sovereign rights. And it's coming down to they don't want us to do gaming in the Bay Area. And really, they should be asking about our legitimacy as a tribe, whether we're a tribe or not. You know, discussing sovereignty, because those are two different issues. Sovereignty and economic development. We shouldn't bring economic development to a sovereignty issue here. Got it. So you're not seeking a piece of land like a reservation at this point, but no. simply recognition. What Acknowledgement would rec- that we exist. And what would that do for you? It would give us the ability to govern ourselves on our own lands. We would have to purchase our land and put that into trust for housing. You know, it gives us health care, education for our students. And, and most recently, there's a lot of things happening now. The UC system just established free tuition for Native students who are in federally recognized tribes. So that would be a benefit to our people and our youth to move through colleges and be successful and help our nation, nation build, to be able to stay on our homelands and survive our 10,000-year history. And you are in one of the most expensive real estate areas on Earth. Do you have a piece of land that you could reasonably expect to acquire and establish schools and housing? Um, we Right now, I'm focused on recognition. And, and yes, I am looking at lands to, to maybe one day own to build that native village for my people because my children, the children of the nation, are being gentrified out of the area. So yes, those are top priorities, is building a native village and, and being able to govern ourselves on our own lands. 
Because I was going to ask if you have members, say, that have assimilated to a degree, they might still have their identity as members of the Muwekma Ohlone. But if they're living in a house that they own and they're working for a tech company and doing just fine, what would motivate them, do you think, to move to a different place? Or could the village that you build be something they visit, but they can remain living where they are? Oh, no. They're, they they want to continue to stay on their homelands. They are proud people. And right now we are working together to revitalize our language, you know, revitalize our dances and bring our culture back because it, it was really taken from us. Everything was taken from us. But we are bringing that back and, and we are stronger and striving. So, so among the members, you find that them and the children have an interest, you've noticed, in learning yes. those the dances, the songs, the language, that type of thing? Yes. Yes, most definitely. Getting back to the congressional delegation that covers the areas where you are, you're, it sounds like you're getting mixed signals from them. Well, I, yes. I have to say I'm shocked how receptive. I always say this is a, a nonpartisan issue. You know, I need to work with both sides to make this happen. But I'm shocked at the good reception I'm getting from the Republicans. They understand that sovereignty and economic development are two different things. And they they don't ask me in my meetings. We're not asking you to take something away from you. We understand you need to nation build. So I get a different reception when I'm dealing with the Republicans than the Democrats. I have to say our Democratic Party, our delegates in our in our area you know, are not as receptive because they're trying to take something, a, a piece of right for my children away to be able to use in the future. And what about the Bureau of Indian Affairs? Maybe they could just add you to the list. Do you, are you sure they need congressional support to do that? They can. They, it, it's as simple as writing a letter and, and really correcting their mistakes. What have they told you since you've been in town? Well, they've said, um, actually, I'm barely getting a meeting with them with the BIA. And that's promising. But I have to say they have shut the door on us as well, saying that you've been through the process and you were denied. And we made our decision and that's final. But it's not final because they have to have a mechanism to correct their mistakes. And they have done that. So precedent has been set with three other tribes in California in the same situation as Muwekma. And there's always the National Defense Authorization Act. If you could get that provision in there, that's one way. Have you have you thought of that route? No, I haven't. Not yet. Well, it's not exactly Just, a defense issue, but if you can get it in there, they would have to vote up on it when they pass that bill. Right. I have to get everybody's support first. Well, good luck to that. Charlene Nijma is chairwoman of the Muwekma Ohlone Native American tribe of the San Francisco Bay Area. Thanks so much for joining me. Thank you for having me and lending a voice to our story. Thank you. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Subscribe to the Federal Drive wherever you get your podcasts. Still ahead, Congress takes up more of the budget this week, and it's got a few repeals. This is the Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. This episode is brought to you by La Quinta by Wyndham. Your work can take you all over the place, like Texas. You've never been, but it's going to be great because you're staying at La Quinta by Wyndham. Their free bright side breakfast will give you energy for the day ahead. And after, you can unwind using their free high-speed Wi-Fi. Tonight, La Quinta. Tomorrow, you shine. Book your stay today at LQ.com.
Welcome back to The Federal Drive with Tom Temin here on Federal News Network. Budget hearings will take up much of Congress's time this week. Transportation Department will be big, plus there's a vote on a nomination to a crucial DOT agency. We get the rundown from Bloomberg Government Deputy News Director Lauren Duggan. And it seems like this Congress, which had a funny start because of the speaker battle, et cetera, et cetera, has kind of reached cruising altitude, to stick with the DOT metaphor there. To some extent, yes. I mean, they've they've had some fits and starts here. It, it took a while to get both chambers up and running, but they have done so now. And we've really seen an uptick in recent weeks of hearings in, in both the House and the Senate. Uh, the budget, obviously, every time that arrives on Capitol Hill, that forces more budget hearings to start happening. So that's that's quickened the pace as well. But um, we're seeing more bills come to the floor. We're seeing more bills come out of committee. Um, so we're definitely getting into a, a more normal rhythm with Congress as the weeks go on here. And this coming week, what will the budget agenda look like? Well, I, I think the key hearings might again be with Janet Yellen, who was up on the Hill last week to talk about budget stuff. But anytime she's there, she's going to get asked about everything going on with the tax um, issues or even banking, which has become a, a big issue for Congress to, to weigh in on. So I think that her hearings will be closely watched because something she says may move markets. But in terms of more traditional review of the budget, we'll see Pete Buttigieg go up and talk about the Transportation Department budget, which you know asks for um, some key investments after things like the bipartisan infrastructure law that was signed in to signed back in 2021. So you know he'll make a case for the programs he wants to see increase. And um, I think we'll see a, a number of these hearings start to kick into gear, both in the appropriations committees, but then also the authorizers like the Hask and SAS, the armed services committees that are writing the defense authorization bill. They're looking at programs that they want to get information about as well. And FAA has been reauthorized? That bill has to be taken up some point this year. So in addition to confirming leadership, one of the top things Congress wants to do this year is pass a new FAA authorization, probably a multi-year one, to ensure that all the taxes that help fund the programs are continued and use this as an opportunity to maybe change some FAA operations because as we've known from recent hearings on this, there is a lot going on at the FAA, whether it was the system that shut down and ground aviation to a halt for a short period of time or near collisions. There's a lot going on with the FAA that Congress is going to want to weigh in on through this legislation. Yeah, often there's some sort of a crisis that shines light on a crucial need in air traffic control. You know, at one time in the 50s, regrettably, it was horrible midair collisions that showed how primitive air traffic control was. We don't have that issue now, but that NOTAMS idea showed that a crucial piece of the safety apparatus anyway in FAA, goodness, it hadn't been updated in decades, and they're still a decade away from updating it. Right. And one of the things that the Commerce Committee, who will be considering Phil Washington's nomination, is also considering is a bill that create a task force on that NOTAM system. So that's already something they're trying to work on, even if they don't want to wait for the larger, longer FAA reauthorization to be finished. Uh, maybe they'll peel off that one piece and do that quicker. And Phil Washington looks like he's not going to necessarily sail through his vote as administrator of FAA. There's been some opposition that came in late last week from Republicans. Yep, he's he's run into trouble with Republicans who have questioned his experience to do this job. Um, there's also been a question hanging over him about whether he needed a waiver because of his military experience when FAA is supposed to be headed by a civilian, although there seemed to be a memo coming out that, that maybe downplayed the need for that. But this, this nomination has been long stalled. It, it hasn't moved. They've had fits and starts. And there's been some legal action involving Phil Washington that has also come into play here in 
and kind of hit the pause button once or twice. If they have the votes on the committee, they can get it to the floor, and presumably they'd have the votes on the floor as well at that point. Um, They rarely put somebody up only to go down on the floor. So um, my assumption is that they're continuing to push forward. They, They probably have the support they need. But they'll be counting every vote between now and then, I'm sure. Yeah, I mean, it's probably debatable how much aviation experience the administrator needs because it's the deputies and the, and the career people that make a lot of that machinery work, and you've got a complicated piece of machinery in the FAA, but that's for Congress to debate. We're speaking with Lauren Duggan, Deputy News Director at Bloomberg Government. And getting back to Janet Yellen, besides people skittish over flying, <laughs> they're also skittish over having money in the bank and Despite her repeated protestations that the banking system is sound, the markets aren't showing that they believe it. Individual investors or bank share or bank account holders aren't either. And so it seems like she can't escape these questions no matter what she's talking about in the coming week. No, she won't. I think anytime she's in front of members of Congress, she's going to get asked these questions and I'm sure do all that she can to try to calm the markets down, calm investors down, calm individual banking customers down too. You know, I think Congress hasn't really said what they want to do here. There's been some immediate calls from members of Congress to maybe undo a 2018 change that was made to the level of assets that subjected you to higher regulation or lower regulation. Uh, uh, That's been pointed to by some people. It's not clear to me that that would move through, given that the split control of Congress may make that difficult. But, you know, there there could be other ideas that they come up with, um, work on that over the next couple of weeks and months. But surely the, the most important thing right now is to try to get confidence back in the system. And members of Congress will probably do what they can to help y'all and get there. But they will have tough questions for her on on things that they're doing. And, you know, I think things like moral hazard will come into play as well. Like, do we still have a $250,000 limit on FDIC? Or is it more than that? I think that's a question members of Congress have asked and, and have thought about and may have some opinions about given their, their general outlook. And I think the toxic asset relief program from the 2008-2009 meltdown is actually still in business. (laughs) And I don't think anyone wants another wave of toxic assets coming into government receivership because these things have long tails. Right. Absolutely. It can go on for a while, but a lot of what's happened so far has been a mix of government. But as we saw, other banks banded together to try to help First Republic out last week, um, which is kind of the industry trying to take care of itself, too. So there's a lot lot happening on a lot of fronts on that. And the House Republicans, they're in Florida for part of the week. What are they doing down there? Right, right now, they're um, Pontra Vedra Beach. They're having their annual issues conference where they, you know, have the chance to be alone in a different area, bring guests in and plot out their agenda for the rest of the year. This is a big year for them. They just took control of the house. They have a lot they want to get done. So this is a chance for them to have um, this kind of retreat and talk about that. So they're down there through Tuesday night. And then the House will come back into session on Wednesday with Republicans and Democrats um, going at legislating once again. But it's, you know, a chance to get away, do a little golfing and talk a little shop. And maybe hear from Ron DeSantis, who's you know suddenly in the Republican swirl, you know, with respect to 2024. It could be. I haven't seen all the guests, but, um, you know, certainly he's the governor of the state. And as we saw when the Democrats met in Baltimore, Democratic Governor Wes Moore went and met with them. So, you know, it's, it's always possible. Yeah, well, good. And I wanted to also ask you about the repeal of the authorizations for the use of military force. These go back a couple of decades. But is that a piece of housekeeping or are there politics around that also? Well, the concern here by people who want to repeal it, and we're talking about the 1999 1991 one, excuse me, around the Gulf War and the Kuwait invasion, and then the 2000 
2.1 that was passed to enable that Iraq war. Um, the interest in getting rid of those is they have been used to justify other military action related to Iraq, but not always. And for some good governance and some housekeeping, they'd like to take those off the books. It wouldn't uh, take, a, take out the 2001 authorization of the use of military force, which was the post 9-11 one right after the attacks that was signed into law. That would still be there and is used often as a as a reason for taking military action abroad. But the, there is interest in clearing some of these things off the books. Um, some people would like it to be as part of a broader overhaul of authorizations of use of military force, but at the very least, this is the, the vote the Senate has before it next week, chopping out these Iraq ones. And just to wind back to the budget hearings, of course, the discussion is on the skinny, then the fat, but fatter budget that was submitted by the administration last week. But that doesn't really get them any closer to a counter proposal from the Republicans in the House if they have how they want agency spending to look, which means all of this debate doesn't really seem to get closer to that October 1st resolution that everyone dreams of. That's correct. And the general tone here is the Biden administration asked for increases for most agencies. As we know, House Republicans want to push spending down in most areas except defense and a couple of other key areas. So um, they have to reconcile what their top lines are going to be and how they're going to write these bills. The House and Senate appropriators do want to move quickly and try to get back to regular order, but it's going to be hard to do regular order too much if you're on completely different wavelengths on the House and the Senate side. But there, there are a lot of questions still hanging out there. The other things that were in the budget about mandatory spending changes or revenue changes as part of a debt limit debate, that's also something that will be joined once everybody's back into town. So there's no shortage of things to talk about on the budget side. Lauren Duggan is Deputy News Director at Bloomberg Government. As always, thanks so much for joining me. Thank you. And we'll post this interview along with a link to more information at federalnewsnetwork.com slash Federal Drive. Hear the Federal Drive on demand. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. An influential defense advisory board is out with a harsh critique of DOD's recruiting process for civilian employees. There really is no recruiting process. The Defense Business Board says DOD doesn't have a discernible talent pipeline for civilians. Now, that's a stark contrast to the private sector employers DOD is competing with and with DOD's own practices for recruiting military members. Federal News Network's Jared Serbu has details on what the board found and its suggestions for reform. According to research the board did for their new report, DOD has about 15,000 people who work full-time to recruit members of the military, but across the entire department, the board could only identify about 100 people whose primary job it is to recruit civilians, and about half of those are in the Air Force. Instead, by and large, the task of recruiting, on paper, falls to DOD's HR specialists. But they have a lot of other jobs, too, including posting positions, resolving personnel issues, and policy development. Matthew Daniel is one of the members of the task group who led the study. He's also in charge of talent strategy at Guild Education. No matter how many good pipelines are developed and scholarships in the community and relationships that exist, there are virtually no recruiters here in the DOD for civilian talent that might catch those pipelines when the talent comes in. There is a difference to be drawn between filling positions and recruiting. Today, the DOD fills civilian positions effectively, but there's little recruiting that's actually happening. And Daniel says that lack of focus on recruiting stands in sharp contrast with the private employers DOD is competing with for talent. Private industry saw a war for talent and they responded decades ago. They developed sophisticated recruiting machines. They specialized and continue to do so. They don't just have recruiters. They have 
recruiting ops positions who just handle scheduling and operations. They have sourcers who are just proactively combing potential talent to create talent pools for future requisitions. They have brand and marketing specialists in recruiting who are doing nothing but targeting talent with messages about the company's mission, values, its latest projects, and priming them for when a position does open. And finally, recruiters who are in that function as well. Among the recommendations the board approved on Friday, DOD needs to create a specialized cadre of civilian recruiters from within its own HR workforce, people who are dedicated to recruiting. The board says the department also needs to focus on building talent pipelines that mirror the ones in private industry, actively cultivating future hires, not just waiting for people to apply for open positions. Alex Alonzo, another board member who also serves as the chief knowledge officer at the Society for Human Resources Management, says there are some scattered examples of pipelines throughout the department. However, there is not a a concerted effort to integrate all current activities so that we maximize the productivity of existing resources. And so we argue that there's an important component that really focuses on developing a workforce plan so we understand the needs for a future workforce, but at the same time also leveraging tools that are available out there, such as artificial intelligence, to mine and analyze data that identifies where it is that the highest quality hires really come from. Where is it that they originate? Some competitors have established a talent pipeline recruitment function capable of identifying talent, conducting interviews within 24 hours, and achieving a full offer within 48 hours of entry into the pipeline. The scary point behind that stat, though, is not the speed and efficiency. It's that those private sector competitors are doing it with mission-critical occupation-type candidates. They're doing it with data sciences. They're doing it with everyone involved in cybersecurity. They're moving through a talent pipeline that allows them to leverage not just the individuals that have entered the pool, but also the individuals that have hit or touched base with their organization in some way. DOD and the federal government more generally is not famous for quick hiring. The board says DOD's current average time to hire civilians is 81 days. That's down from 99 days in 2018, but DOD hasn't made much progress in reducing it further for the past three years. Daniel says those delays have real consequences for DOD's ability to compete for high-quality candidates. It's well-known in the community. We heard that candidates get discouraged about having to use USA jobs. They feel like it's a black hole and they won't get a response. Private industry is innovating on how to get hiring done more and more quickly. And in the time it takes to make a job offer from DOD, those candidates are ghosting DOD and moving to private sector jobs. The sentiment quickly becomes among candidates. If this is what it's like to get a job here, what will it be like to work here? The board says DOD also needs to focus on building an employer brand and do a better job of communicating the defense mission and the wide breadth of positions available throughout the civilian workforce. The board's research showed about 42 percent of Americans don't even know civil service jobs exist in DOD. Those that do sometimes associate those jobs with wars they disagree with or hold the view that bureaucrats are incompetent or corrupt. Now, a juxtaposition of the DOD would be NASA. NASA has moved into a focus on term roles where you come and uh, built a brand. They built their brand around a place to come and solve big problems. They know the talent profile of the folks that they're looking for are looking to solve gnarly problems, build experience and move on with their career. They've used that as a part of their employer brand in the market. That's how they're delivering messages. Based on our interviews with organizations who've struggled with both brand and employer brand, as the DOD might be said to right now, recruiters and sourcers have been given talking points on how to address candidate concerns 
head on and reshape the narrative with potential candidates. No such mechanism exists that we could find within the DOD. And as we've said before, there's not necessarily a recruiter to hand those talking points to today. The board says DOD also needs to do a much better job of gathering and using data about its existing workforce and its workforce needs. The study found the department doesn't have a database to match skills with its job opportunities and doesn't have much in the way of metrics about the overall health of the workforce. Daniel says that's another way in which DOD's management of civilians differs from military members. On the DOD's military personnel processes, we'll draw the comparison again. There's a platform called the Defense Readiness Reporting System that exists to help components track readiness against national military strategy. It contains near real-time reporting, and we see this as a model that could be followed for civilian uh, readiness. As it stands today, civilian readiness is not measured nor factored into the total force readiness. There is much opportunity to take existing data, make it available more widely, hold leaders accountable for improving candidate experience and drive better recruiting and richer pipelines. The board thinks there are opportunities for the department to use some of the structures it already has to improve civilian hiring. For example, military recruiters could help get people into civil service positions in cases where they don't meet the physical standards for uniform service. And the report found there's good reason to believe DOD's policy of requiring retiring military members to wait 180 days before they take a civilian job causes a lot of talent to walk out the door. It was written for a reason. However, the impact the talent strategy cannot be overstated. DOD is investing tens of millions of dollars, if not more, in investing on talent, skills, development, training, only to see them leave for the private industry because there is no option to stay. This is an area for robust piloting testing. We saw some uh, versions of testing in this uh, in recent years. It, it is, uh, we believe there is opportunity to do more. Jared Serbu, Federal News Radio, part of the Federal News Network. Check out Jared's story at federalnewsnetwork.com. Still to come, Social Security establishes a new office just for Native Americans. This is The Federal Drive with Tom Tammen. For the latest updates, stay with federalnewsnetwork.com or follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and LinkedIn. I'm Tom Tammen. 